If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg, and friend... Today on the podcast, Stephen Van Cohen is going to be coming on to discuss building a culture of togetherness. And this episode is for you. If you feel maybe like your workplace is either breeding or starting to breed loneliness and disconnection. And in this episode, we are going to discover some groundbreaking strategies that will not only combat this silent epidemic, but turn your team into a force of togetherness. And a force of togetherness is a productive, high-performing team. Steve Ann Cohen is joining us today, and he is a Wall Street Journal bestselling author, internationally recognized leadership consultant, and executive coach. You have also seen him probably on CNBC, Forbes, Fortune, Fast Company, and also Inc. Magazine. And his latest book is out. It's called Connectable, How Leaders Can Move Teams from Isolated to All In. And In Stephen's work, he has been helping and leading organizations to improve worker well-being, to reduce employee disconnection, and to boost team belonging. He also, by the way, is co-founder of LessLonely.com, which I feel pretty confident we're going to be having a conversation about as well. Hey, Stephen, welcome to the podcast. It is my pleasure to be here. Now, One of the things I do like about your book, and you co-authored it with another person, is you each in the table of contents listed what your favorite chapter was. And I think yours is on the science of belonging. Why is that your favorite? My favorite part of all of the research we did for the book was understanding where the feelings of loneliness and isolation show up in the brain. Because when you think about the importance of connection Empirically, we all could get on the same page that connections matter, relationships are important, and we should invest some time and energy and effort into them because they make our lives better and more fulfilling. However, when you get into the biological responses of just how badly we need connection in our life, it is pretty mind-blowing. So 
the research that was done in 2011 that shed some important light on this was done in a lab where participants were put through this experience of exclusion. And they had an fMRI brain map that was tracking all of the activity in their brain. And when they were put through this experience of exclusion, the researchers found that the part of the brain that activated is the same part of the brain that registers physical pain. And this means that when we feel excluded and lonely, our body actually goes through a fight or flight response, which releases very dangerous and very harmful stress hormones, which plague us with all kinds of really harmful illnesses. And when we think about the importance of connection, there's a pretty famous line out there that says, feeling regularly or chronically disconnected is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's just how bad feeling disconnected on a regular basis is for us. So that chapter specifically was my favorite because it puts a whole new perspective on just how important our relationships and our connections are. I will say that I can actually picture that illustration in your book of a brain that feels pain and a brain that feels loneliness. Um, really, really, your book is full of great illustrations. Loved that illustration. Now, I know a lot of what you talk about in this book is definitely research-backed, but you also have a personal story about connection and your newborn. Yeah. So I am a very proud father of two. And when my wife, Jennifer, gave birth to our first daughter, Claudia, it was a very traumatic experience. So when we went to the hospital, we went to the hospital because my wife was 12 hours into her delivery and nothing was progressing. And because nothing was progressing, the nurses had to help move things along a bit more quickly. And in the process of this, my wife started to go through and have these very, very painful episodes that caused my daughter's heart rate to drop and my wife's heart rate to drop. And all of the doctors and nurses flooded into the room where we were waiting to deliver this baby and rushed her into the OR to give her an, an emergency C-section. And when they did that and they pulled my daughter out from my wife, she was non-responsive. So usually when a baby comes out, they're crying and they're making noise and they're loud and you know that this baby is in high spirits. When my daughter Claudia came out, the nurses had to rush her over to an exam table in order to help her breathe. And she was bluish purple and she wasn't doing well. And the doctor decided that Claudia had to go up to the NICU for some further treatments. And right before our doctor took my daughter up to the NICU, he brought her over to my wife and he said, mom, you could have very quick skin to skin contact before I need to bring this baby upstairs. And he gently placed my daughter on my wife's chest. And as soon as my daughter hit my wife's skin, she took a huge breath in. And then she took another huge breath in and her bluish purple skin started to transform to bright and pink. And she melted right in my wife's arms. Her vitals completely stabilized. And the decision was made that she did not need to go up to the NICU. My daughter needed to be close to the most important person in her life. And by feeling the connection with her mom, she snapped out of whatever was going on. And she came back and is this beautiful, healthy, amazing child. And seeing that moment of my daughter hit my wife's chest and completely feel comforted and able to come back to life was one of the most powerful and beautiful moments of my life. And it goes to show that 
connection is the most powerful force on the planet. That is both powerful and beautiful. And it makes me curious, were you already working on connection and loneliness before that point? No, we started to write our book in 2019. My daughter was born in 2017. So the story in that moment of the importance of all of this came full circle when I started to write the book and do deep research and really figure out some of the things that we explored when it comes to human to human connectedness. Um, but no, there, there were two totally separate events. So it sounds like that event around the birth of your daughter was a step in the direction of going, oh, I need to write this book. What caused you to make the decision that this was something that was really necessary and urgently needed? The genesis of the book actually came from my co-author, Ryan. And Ryan is a thought leader in the future of work and in generational dynamics. And in 2019, he was writing a book on Gen Z called The Gen Z Guide. And in 2019, pre-pandemic, he came across this statistic that 79% of Gen Zers sometimes or always feel alone. And that caught us off guard because the work we do with a lot of our clients is to understand the future of work and how to build organizational culture to support young talent and how to recruit and retain and develop young professionals and to have a really lonely generation flooding into the workforce. We figured, what do we recommend? What do we do? What are the strategies that employers can really be mindful of in order to help connect this disconnected generation. And we started to do research and we came up with these strategies and these findings around loneliness at work. And then the pandemic hit and we had like all of this stuff on loneliness and isolation and disconnection. And we went to Home Depot and Blackstone and Liberty Mutual Insurance and clients of ours that we've done different work for. And we said, do you want to talk about loneliness in the workplace? And client after client after client with a resounding yes gave us some confidence and proof that this is worth exploring in more detail. And that was the genesis of the book. And McGraw-Hill published it, and we were really fortunate to have it hit the bestseller list last year. And you know, my world has really transformed into mostly consulting and speaking on this topic. I know you just mentioned Gen Z. And one of the things I was struck by in your book is that I'm pretty sure I recall this correctly. Gen Z statistically is the loneliest generation. By a pretty wide margin. Yeah. So when you think about Gen Z, you'd think, you know, these 25 to 15 year olds, you'd think they'd be really socially connected, right? They have either, they're either in high school or college or have just left uh, some kind of a, an educational institution. They should have pretty big friend groups are probably dating. Like there's a lot going on socially at that stage of your life. And yet this generation is significantly more lonely than their baby boomer grandparents who might be living alone in retirement communities. So there's something really wacky going on as we look at uh, some of the generational dynamics as it relates to social isolation and disconnection. Why is that? And how does that play into our work world? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. There are a few big reasons. There, there are eight that we talk about in the book. Uh, the three that we'll focus on that really relate to the workplace, one is busyness. And I think we all could agree that the busier we are, the less margin we have to connect in meaningful ways with others. And if you look at the lifestyle of a young professional, they're really busy, right? They're trying to grind out work. They're often doing activities. They have a lot of responsibility in their young life, and that could create disconnects with the people around them. We almost these days where busyness is like a badge of honor. You know, so if we run into someone, oh, how are you doing? Oh, I'm busy. I'm busy all the time. I don't have any time. We've glorified being busy. 
Yeah. I, I like I'm a fan of a lot of Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk's work, but I have a big problem with some of his stuff because this mentality of a hustle culture, like you got to grind, 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 go, go, go. If you're not first, you're last. Like all of these kinds of mantras are creating the disconnection that we're seeing, right? If people are so focused on getting things done, it means they're not focused on finding quality time with the people who can build them up and make them feel connected. So yeah, busyness is a, a huge reason why we're seeing this massive shift into newfound loneliness levels. The second, and in, in, in my own personal opinion, why I think Gen Z is the loneliest generation on the planet is due to what's called dependency shift. And dependency shift is this idea that we're no longer reliant on each other as we once were. So 20 years ago, right at work, if I had a question, I needed to like find another person in order to get the answer. Now I don't need any other person. I can go to Google, I can go to YouTube, I can go into the e-learning library in my LMS. Like no humans are required anymore for me to get the information and knowledge that I need. And that's a problem because it's really connective when someone is teaching and coaching and providing advice and giving guidance. And at work, that has been consistently dwindling for a very long time. And Gen Z, the entire generation is younger than Google. So through their entire life, they've had access to all of the world's knowledge. And I think this dependency shift is a big reason why they're feeling lonelier and more isolated. They're not as willing to ask for help because they're just going to figure it out on their own. So that's the second. And then the third is due to this difference between communication and connection. So remote work and advanced communication technologies in the form of social media, texting, email, et cetera, have created a fundamentally different way in which now we're showing up for each other. And what we've learned is that tactical communication, like who's doing what, by when, where, and how. We're brainstorming to solve a problem. We're coming up with plans. All of that kind of like task-specific information that goes back and forth between people, all of that communication is different than connection. Communication is dealt. Connection is felt. Connection is when me and you can have a moment and I feel seen. I feel understood. I feel appreciated. I feel like you're really interested in whatever I have to say because you ask me questions. And because of the rise of all of the digital communication tools that we now utilize day in and day out, the opportunities to connect have dwindled, especially at work when we're doing most of our work remotely and we're having a lot of our exchanges be communicative in nature and not connective in nature. So when you look at Gen Z, they've been communicating through digital mediums through most of their life and reading a text and actually being in the same room with someone and having an exchange is really different with how our brain and body responds to those messages. So those are the big three. There's a whole bunch more, but I'll stop there for now. And so I know you mentioned you started writing the book in 2019. The pandemic happened. Lots of people became fully remote. Now lots of people are hybrid. In what ways is being a hybrid team member really exacerbating those three factors? Well, it's interesting. The definition of loneliness, it goes against what we would think from a definition standpoint. So loneliness is not defined by the absence of people. It's defined by the absence of connection. And we know this inherently. 
because I could be surrounded by lots of people and feel incredibly lonely. Or I could be a remote worker living by myself and feel incredibly connected. It's all about the quality of my interactions and the frequency of those interactions that are restorative in nature. So when it comes to this question of in-person, how many days, remote, hybrid, what's the right policy? Do we force everybody back into the office? In, in my own very biased perspective, I don't think the number of days together in person matters because I know lots of people who go into offices and are surrounded by other humans and feel really lonely. What matters is the intentionality between those people and how we show up and connect when we have the opportunities. So in a remote hybrid working environment, it is harder for opportunities for connection to take place. It creates more intentionality, but it's still very possible. So for me, it's more about what's the team doing and how are we prioritizing our connection and how are we building some strategy behind it? And if it's in person or if it's remote, I don't think that matters as much as how we're showing up and the reasons behind the way we're interacting with each other. So how do we make that more intentional? That's a great question. That's the big question, right? A few important things that we need to be mindful of when it comes to actually becoming more connectable. My second favorite chapter in the book is this chapter number 10, which is all about this idea of being interruptible. And being interruptible is really focusing on the people versus the tasks that plague my day. And one of the ways that we can be more interruptible is by establishing what's called a social regimen. And a social regimen is very similar to a workout regimen or a health regimen or a regimen in our day where I have dedicated time to do certain activities, if I'm going to be intentional with my connection, I need to defend it on my calendar. And I need to really make sure I'm making time to do the types of pro-social connective behaviors that are really important. So every week for one uh, day, for one hour, putting something in your calendar where that's just dedicated time to connect. Maybe it's Tuesday morning coffees. Maybe it's Wednesday afternoon lunches, virtual or in person. Maybe it's a Thursday evening phone call to someone you haven't talked to in a while. Whatever you decide to do doesn't matter much. What does matter is you block out the time and you actually commit to doing something socially restorative. So that's the first thing we got to be mindful of, social regimen and being more interruptible. The second, from a work standpoint, is the most useful tool that I've come across as I've been working with leaders specifically is a tool focused on creating more clarity. So we could all imagine if we're wandering around in the forest without a map, we don't know where to go, we don't know who to turn to, we're not sure what resources we have available, that sensation is a lonesome sensation. We would feel really lonely in that environment. And at work, that shows up often. <laughs> we're like, I'm at work and I don't really know who I'm supposed to be talking to. I don't feel there's uh, someone who's guiding me on the right way. I'm a bit lost. So at work, when we want to create more clarity, leaders who are able to commit to one-on-one, 10-minute, informal, weekly check-ins, I found have really connected teams. So a 10-minute, one-on-one, informal check-in is, how did last week go? What are you focused on this week? What are your goals? What are your obstacles? How can I help? Just doing that every week or every other week, one-on-one with each team member is really connective. 
because it shows that you care about their performance. You can give them feedback and insight. You can reinforce the good things they did last week. You can guide them if they're planning to do something this week that might not be the right uh, approach. And we found that those little touch points have huge impact. In fact, Marcus Buckingham, who is a well-known thought leader and researcher, through his Gallup research, found that when employees have access to these 10-minute informal check-ins, engagement goes up by 66% and retention goes up by 77%. Feels good when someone is showing us uh, you know, the way and when someone's taking the time to be in our presence. So those are two. I have like 50 more, but I'll stop there and see if you have any follow-up questions about any of that. So I'm very curious about the 10-minute the check-ins, but I'm curious also to know what are some of the big things that leaders should be doing within their organizations to ensure there's more connectedness and less loneliness? I think the de facto kind of check in the box that leaders do is, let's just do a five-minute icebreaker at the beginning of a meeting and let's just say we did it, right? Like everyone do some silly activity that doesn't really have any kind of you know, tie back to our work for the day. And leaders think they've checked the connection box or leaders think let's just do a happy hour and let's get everybody together away from work. We're going to build some of that social capital. Doesn't work. We've learned that happy hours and offsites don't work because people are already exhausted from the day. People uh, have obligations away from work that now this is impeding between kids caring for elders, taking care of pets, et cetera. And what happens is when people are away from work, they tend to talk about the thing that they most have in common, which is work. And we notice that at happy hours, people who already are close and have a friendship tend to hang out with each other. So all of the offsite activities tend to not do what leaders are hoping it will do, which is to create this trust and bonding and uh, et cetera. So one of the things that leaders can be really mindful of from a, a big picture standpoint is time during the work week needs to be dedicated to do some of these socially restorative types of things. And if I'm just trying to check the box really quick, that doesn't work. Offsites don't work. So one of the things that works well with the leaders I coach and work with is doing an end of week uh, pulse check. So at the end of the week, the team is able to give a score from A to F. And I would go around and say, okay, Jim, what's your score? And he would say, this week was a B and here's why. Susie might say, this week was a C and here's why. And by giving a grade and by giving people an opportunity to share how the week went, it is bonding. We can understand each other. We get on the same page and we get in sync. So that's a good exercise. I got a couple of questions on that exercise. So I know some people, their style is to always say, oh, this week was an A, even when it was not. I also know some people's styles say, oh, this week was a D. Even, you know, and every week is a D. So how do leaders create a good group dynamic if you've got a couple of people where it's always an A and a couple of people where it's always a D? The beautiful thing of giving a grade every time is as a leader, I can be aware of that. And I can start to really push back and say, you've had three A weeks. I don't know. That seems unlikely that nothing has gone wrong in the last three weeks. Tell me one thing that has maybe been frustrating. And you can use the grades in order to guide more pointed questions and to dig a little bit deeper. And I found it really useful. You could also understand if someone's always a D or an F or a C minus or whatever, then that's 
a signal that I need to spend maybe more time with them, or I need to have an offline conversation to figure out what's going on. And I've had leaders who have said, Steve, I don't think my team is comfortable enough sharing a grade and speaking openly with each other in which I say, then you have a huge problem (laughs) because if you have a team that is unable or unwilling to share a score on how they're feeling for the week with a little bit of context, you, you need to really work on this because that's not a psychologically safe team. There's little trust and we have different things that we need to think about, right? Got it. Okay. So I, I stopped you. I know you were moving on. The other one that is similar in nature is I like this idea of doing either weekly or monthly or quarterly crushes. So a crush is where we're, the team gets together and we just call each other out for something great that someone did. So I'd be say, able to say, you know what, Ryan, last week you did this and I really appreciate it. Or I noticed you were a, a rock star with this upset customer and client. You did a really good job handling and diffusing the situation. Or it meant so much to me that you were able to stay late and help me with this thing when you didn't have to. When we can create opportunities for the team to recognize each other in a bit of a formal and structured way, it happens more often. We think it's just going to happen anecdotally, and it doesn't because we're busy and there's lots of things going on and we forget. So all of this advice and and some of these best practices are really rooted around this idea of how can we carve out some time during the work week to actually do some of this stuff versus just keep our heads down and you know work until we, we go home at five o'clock. So I will share with you last year, I did an interim chief executive engagement and that crushes, although they did not call it that, crushes were were a regular part of their staff meeting. And you're right, it was powerful. It was like, like even, even on tough days when people were sagging, it was a pick me up. There's this, this line in the book that I really like. The line is, loneliness is being seen through, belonging is being seen as. When you do those kinds of activities, people see each other. And it's validation that you noticed that I did this, this, and this, and it was meaningful. And by calling that out, it makes me feel like, you know, I'm in this with others. They're paying attention to me. They got my back. And uh, all of that is really connective in nature. Oh, that, that That is powerful. That is very, very powerful. The other thing I just have to note, I found it interesting that your second most favorite chapter was your co-author Ryan's favorite chapter. I don't know if his second favorite chapter is chapter uh, six on belonging. I'll have to ask him. Maybe yeah. me and him are just gravitating towards these these two. Yeah. W- w- when you said that was your second favorite, I started away in my mind. I was like, well, that's interesting because like clearly you and your co-author are connected as well. You know, like like if his favorite chapter is your second favorite, you're you know you're you're pretty much in sync. We're. I mean, me and him spend a lot of time together. So I would hope by now, after seven years of being business partners, we're a bit in sync. But it's it's funny that that chapter is really powerful because it describes something that we don't think about as being important to connection. My business partner, Ryan, he's very introverted. And as an introvert, he chooses very specifically when to connect with strangers. And Ryan's mantra and his overall thesis around connection before we wrote the book was that connections need to be lasting in order for them to be meaningful. Like if I'm in the elevator with you and I'm never going to see you again, what's the point? Or if we're standing in line and I don't know who you are, why would I engage, right? And what we found is that two people can have what's called a restorative connection in as little as 40 seconds. And some research out of Harvard has found 
that the diversity of our interactions within a given day, what they call weak tie connections, different from our strong tie connections, friends, family, coworkers, et cetera, the level of the diversity of our weak tie connections is almost as important for our health, our well-being, and our happiness as our strong tie connections. All of those people that you bump into, who you maybe share a smile with or tell a joke to and in line, I have a two-year-old daughter and I'm very biased, but she's extremely cute. And when I'm standing in line and someone says, oh my God, your daughter is so beautiful. That moment makes me feel really good. It makes me feel seen. It makes me feel like we're doing something together, even though I'm never going to see this person again. And chapter 10 is all about this. And there's something really, really important to the sensation of being interruptible that um, most of us aren't paying enough attention to. I have to just reflect in my own life Stephen, I have I have lived in cities where ninety percent of people commute by car, i.e., their own car, just themselves. And I have lived in cities where ninety percent of people commute on the subway and bus and mass transit and walking. And by far, I have always appreciated the cities where people commute by mass transit and walking so much more because it does give you that opportunity for just those those small connections. Now, sometimes. It's also far less convenient, but it gives you opportunities for those amazing connections that just happen as you're walking down the street or as you're standing on a subway platform. When the heart of the pandemic was going on in 2021 and things were still really shut down, one of my clients, uh, she has got grown kids out of the house. She's divorced, doesn't live with anyone else. And she was living in Canada where things were really restricted. And I remember talking to her saying like, how are you? I got to imagine you're not doing well. This has got to be really tough. Kids aren't there. You don't live with anyone else, et cetera. And she said, I'm doing great. I thought that was a bit strange. And I said, well, tell me more. What's going on? And she said, I made it a point every single day when I walk my dog to smile and have conversations with at least five people. And she said, I've been doing it every day for two months. And she said, I have never felt more connected in my entire life. And it is, right? Like it's these moments on a train, on a bus, on an airplane, waiting in line that have so much more of an impact than we think they will. I just have to share a quick personal story connection. And then by the way, we're going to do another connection exercise, but I have to share a quick personal story. So during the pandemic, my husband and I, we moved to a new city and we, we rented an apartment to, you know, just feel out the city, figure out where we would want to buy a house, et cetera. And it's during the pandemic. So you really can't go out much. And also we don't want to spend a lot of time with realtors, you know, inside homes, et cetera. So every night after work, we'd go for a walk. And there's this one neighborhood, not that far from our apartment, the apartment complex we were we were living in, that we went through multiple times. And because it was the pandemic, lots of people were walking in that neighborhood and also were like just out in front of their homes and, and behind their homes, and you're just talking with other neighbors. And so it's interesting because it was the first time in my life where I'd walked through a neighborhood probably a hundred times before buying a place and had had conversations with dozens of my future neighbors. And literally by the end, like our future neighbors were lobbying for us. They were saying, no, no, you have to get a home here in our community. We want you to be our neighbors. And there was such a strong sense of connection. What you're talking about is community. Unfortunately, many of us live in places where that doesn't exist. There's people around, but there's no community. And at work, like to bring it back to work, unfortunately, people aren't finding company inside their company. Like there's a lot of people I have access to, 
But for whatever reason, I just don't feel that pull. I don't feel that community. I don't feel anybody lobbying for me to be here. And I just find it heartbreaking when people are in environments where that doesn't exist. And I agree with you. And and I, I will just say, I mean, I feel like, and I want to get your take on this, you know, I, I feel like leaders have a lot to do with that. But I also think all of us play a role in creating community at work. We all play a role and we have to be able to do the things that we need, right? Like when we think about connection, there's a quota that we each have as unique individuals that we need met in order to feel a certain way. So as a very, very extreme extrovert, my quota and requirement is very different from my partner, Ryan, who's an extreme introvert. So yes, we have to fend for ourselves and we have to do things that are important for our own connection levels. But back to your point, leaders set the tone. Leaders are going to demonstrate how we show up for each other. Leaders are going to structure a lot of our work and our meetings and what we do with said work and said meetings. And leaders who don't either care or don't know how to address this problem inadvertently are not creating the space needed for people to connect. In fact, there was a statistic that came out last year that found 66% of employees currently are not happy with the opportunity for social connection within the workplace. So more than half of us go to work feeling like, I need more. There's I'm missing something as it relates to this element of my work. And yeah, leaders play a crucial role in that. Hmm. I appreciate that. Thank you, Steve. So I want to move to a quick connection activity. I like to play two truths and a lie with our guests. So hit me. Give me two truths and a lie, any order you want. I'm going to try to guess the lie. All right, so here they are. Number one, I have cage dived with great white sharks. Number two, I've been to more than 30 countries. Number three, I have three tattoos. I could see all three of those being true for you, which makes this very, very hard. I am going to guess that it's the tattoos. I think you have tattoos, but not the number you said. I have zero tattoos. You no nailed way. it. I'm not that cool. I don't have any ink, I guess, at least not yet. Maybe I turn 40 next year. So maybe for my 40th, I'll, I'll get tatted up a little bit. So I'll share with you, I also have no tattoos. And and for the last 10 or 12 years, and, and I'm 52 now, so for the last 10 or 12 years, I keep thinking, maybe I should get a tattoo. But the longer it goes, the more I'm like, you know, like I don't have that many more years left to really enjoy a tattoo on my body. Yeah, and unless there's something really compelling to just yeah. get one now, I don't know. It's maybe seems a little irresponsible. <laughs> so yeah, so it's funny, but okay. Woo. All right. Finally, I got one and I'm super happy about that. Steve, nice job. Th thank you so much for joining us today. I learned a lot in reading your book. I've learned even more by having this conversation with you. And I know that our friends who are listening got a lot out of it as well. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And friends, there's two things I have to make sure you know about. First of all, you can go to lesslonely.com and find out more about Steve Van Cohen's work. Second, you absolutely should pick up a copy of Connectable, How Leaders Can Move Teams from Isolated to All In. And you can pick up a copy of that book, obviously at Amazon, but if you're looking for a little connection, walk into your local bookstore and ask them if they could order it for you if they don't already have it on the shelf. And if you think about it this way, it might feel like an inconvenience, but it actually gives you an opportunity to interact with your local bookstore once, maybe twice, if they need to order it.
Friends, if you found this episode useful, if it made you think, if you're a leader in your organization and it made you think about ways you're going to be doing things differently, or if you're not a leader in your organization, but it helped you think about some ways that you could show up differently at work, there's two other episodes that I want you to listen to. One is episode 302, Maximize Your Employee Engagement and Retention with Rob Warnoff. And the second is episode 292, Preserve Your Office Culture with Parine Kolhas. That, my friends, is our show for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help you and your nonprofit thrive. And the lawyers make me do it. Otherwise, honestly, I really wouldn't. But oh well, I'm not an accountant nor an attorney. And neither I nor the consulting practice provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. I say this every single week. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you know what that means. It means it should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Please, if that is what you need, find a licensed, qualified professional in your area and get the help and the guidance that you really need.